you would turn to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. We start in verse 21. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times. Therefore the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. And since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, have patience with me and I will pay you everything. And out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, have patience with me, and I will pay you. He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also, my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Let's pray. Dear Father, our our Lord in heaven, Lord, we come to you with humble hearts this morning as... We just read this parable and and the warning at the end and feel the weight of that warning. God, be with us this morning as, as I know this sermon for many of us is going to be a heavy sermon, Lord. I pray that you would help us examine our hearts to see if there is bitterness, anger, hurt, frustration that shouldn't be there, Lord. That you would convict us, Lord, in light of the gospel, in light of how much we have been forgiven, Lord, that we would easily turn to you, Lord, and away from the, the hurt and bitterness that we sometimes just hold on to, God. God, I pray that, Lord, you would help us as a church, be a church that eagerly is willing and wanting to forgive each other and eagerly is willing to ask for forgiveness when we are wrong. That reconciliation would be a high priority, Lord. That we would be a witness through that, that we would be unified because of that. God, I pray this morning as we understand the reason we should be a forgiving people, that we would be convicted to to move that direction. God, I just pray for your spirit in your son's name. Amen. You may be seated. 
Last Sunday, we started a, a two-week sermon series on being a forgiving church, on being a forgiving church. Last week was really just an introduction to the sermon this week. I, I kind of joked around about that, but, but really it was the introduction to this amazing parable uh, that I read this morning, an amazing parable by Jesus on the topic of forgiveness. Really, last week we did two things to introduce this parable. We looked at Peter's question that is found in verse 21, which says this, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times? We looked at the context of this question, what provoked Peter to ask it. It was in the middle of a teaching uh, that Jesus was was teaching. This is a long teaching in, in chapter 18. And we learn that, that forgiveness through the context through Jesus' teaching, that forgiveness is meant to be interpersonal, not just personal. Interpersonal meaning between people, between in, in relationships. That, that forgiveness is meant to happen in the context of relationships, not something that just happens within one's heart, within one's person. Interpersonal, not just personal. We also looked at Jesus' answer to Peter's question, which is found in verse 22. Uh, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but seventy-seven times, or the idiom could be translated seven times seventy times. In other words, endlessly. We are to forgive those that have wronged against us endlessly. We learn the extent of our forgiveness, again, should be endless or limitless. Today we're going to be looking at why that is. Why the church should be a place of forgiveness, characterized by forgiveness. Why Christians should be characterized by forgiveness, and why it doesn't make any sense at all. Any sense at all when we aren't. So I have three points of the sermon this morning, really three parts of this parable. The three points are... The reason for forgiveness, the reason for forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, and finally, the danger of unforgiveness. The reason for forgiveness, the cost of forgiveness, and the danger of unforgiveness. So let's start with the reason for forgiveness. If you would, again, look at verse 23. Jesus is still answering Peter's question. He answers it once, and then he answers it again with a parable. Again, a parable is a story that's meant to parallel real life. It's a story that, that it goes alongside real life. It, it, look at verse 23. This is the start of the parable. Jesus says, Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. Now, the word servants here is doulos in the Greek. It, it literally means slave. In fact, uh, Will talked about this a little bit this morning already. But doulos is typically translated servant in most uh, New Testament uh, English Bibles. And that's because the word slave has a, a particular connotation to uh, most English-speaking readers. A connotation that, that's kind of false to the word um, used in, in uh, uh, the Bible um, especially in the New Testament, and that's because of our history, uh, both English history and American history. But I, I want to be clear, slavery in the Roman Empire, which is the context uh, of this word doulos, it w was much different than early American slavery. Let me give you a couple reasons that was. First of all, it wasn't race-based, uh, meaning you couldn't tell a, 
a person was a slave just by looking at him. Also, slavery wasn't necessarily a lifelong sentence in a, uh, the Roman Empire. Slaves were, would often work side by side, shoulder to shoulder, uh, beside free men earning wages. And some could even earn own property, and, and, and many even held respected positions within the culture. In fact, some men would, would even sell themselves into slavery for a time to gain security and education, really to better their lives. Now, I want to be clear, I'm not trying to endorse Roman pagan slavery. It's, that's different than the slavery we talked about in Exodus. Uh, um, th- this is a whole different culture that's talking about slavery. I'm not endorsing it. it that's not the point I'm trying to make. Most slaves in the Roman Empire, to be clear, were treated horrifically. The point I'm trying to make is that many were treated extremely well. And we're given lots of trust and responsibilities, and that's the case in this parable. These servants or slaves were educated, trusted men of the king, who were put in charge of the kingdom's treasury. In fact, they're probably put in charge of collecting taxes as we kind of go through this parable. For a slave, this was a privileged position. And in this parable, the king calls these servants together to settle his accounts of the kingdom, of the taxes that were collected. And so far in Jesus' parable, and I think it's important to understand, this would have been a a very familiar story to the disciples, not something far-fetched. Just normal Roman culture from from their understanding. But as you study Jesus' parables, and I've studied a number of them, especially the the longer parables, the longer stories that, that Jesus tells you, you start to see a pattern in his stories. I think it's important to understand this. There's typically in his stories a turning point. In fact, Jesus is just a a master at telling stories. Some of his parables are some of the best short stories that you'll you'll ever read. He's a master at at telling stories, and and he'll take a a familiar story, and, and he'll begin that way, and then he'll turn it. He'll turn it to, to make it unlikely or even unrealistic or, or something that is almost unbelievable. Maybe not quite unbelievable, but, but very, very hard to believe. And I, I think he does this, if I had to guess, I think he does this to draw the listener into the story. You kind of follow along with him, and then there's something that kind of makes you think, well, wow, that, that's different. And we see this turning point in verse 24. It says this in verse 24. When he, this is the king, when he began to settle, this is the accounts with these servants that work for him, when he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 10,000 talents. Now, that's probably a meaningless uh, number to most of us, but but 10,000 talents was a ridiculously large amount of wealth. So large that this is the hard-to-believe point of the story. How how could anyone owe someone 10,000 talents? Let me just try to explain the best I can. A a talent was a unit of weight, probably about 75 pounds. So one talent of wealth was was like 75 pounds of gold or silver. Therefore, if you do the math, 10,000 talents is like... 750,000 pounds of a precious metal. 
This man embezzled somehow, but probably more shockingly, lost 750,000 pounds of gold or silver. Now, if you read commentaries, many have tried to equate this to dollars, and let's just say it's billions and billions of dollars. And the reason I don't want to get into that is because after a certain point, and we know this because of our uh, country's debt, after a certain point, the number just gets ridiculous, and you can't get your mind wrapped around it. So let me try to put this in a different way. One denarii, as we'll learn in a second here, was uh, equivalent to one day's worth of work. One talent equaled approximately 6,000 denarii, 6,000 days worth of work. Therefore, if you do the math, 10 talents would be 200,000 years worth of work. That's what the servant owed this king. That's well over 2,000 lifetimes. Probably closer to 3,000. 2,000 lifetimes worth of debt. Therefore, verse 25 says this, and since he, the servant, obviously could not pay 2,000 lifetimes, there's no way he could pay. His master ordered him to be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and payment to be made. Now this king is never going to get his money back, but it was within his right to get as much back as he could. No one would have argued about this in in the Roman culture. He was going to sell this slave, probably to much harsher conditions. He was going to sell this slave, but not only that, he was going to sell his wife and children and take every single thing this man owed, owned, to pay back a small portion of what this man owed him. Therefore, therefore, verse 26 says this, So the servant fell on his knees, imploring him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Now, this truly is a, a desperate plea by the servant. Everyone would have known 10,000 talents. There's just no way you could pay this back. There's only 2,000 2, lifetimes worth. He could work his whole life and, and still still only have paid a small portion of this. This is a, this is a desperate plea for mercy on this man's part. Now, again, as I said, Jesus is a master storyteller. A lot of times, because we don't know uh, the culture that he's talking to, things that would have just been understood by the listeners, like how much 10,000 talents is, we, we kind of miss that because we, we don't know the cultural context. Uh, but, but he's a, a masterful storyteller. Again, he, there's typically a turning point. He'll take a story where you're just kind of tracking, going, yeah, I can see that happening. And suddenly there's this turning point where you're like, whoa. That's hard to believe. It's somewhat ridiculous, even. I mean, 10,000 talents and and again, I, I believe he does this to draw, draw the audience into his story, to, to put them on the edge of, edge, edge of their seat to go, okay, what's going to happen next? But he doesn't stop there in his parables. 
Again, there's this pattern. Often in his parables, there's this hard-to-believe portion, a turning point in this story, and it's followed by, very quickly, something so ridiculous, so absurd, so unbelievable, that, that it provokes emotion by the person listening. Right, to the point that you could almost imagine Jesus' audience, especially if it was a Jewish audience, stopping him in the middle of the story in protest, saying something like, that would never happen. This is too ridiculous. You've just gone too far with this story. What type of story is this? Well, that outrageous part is found in verse 27. And it says this, and out of pity for him, listen to this, master, this king, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. Listen, no king would ever do that. No king would ever do that. Again, you can almost picture the disciples, that's who Jesus is talking to, he's teaching the disciples. You can almost picture the disciples, probably Peter, Stopping Jesus in the middle of this story and saying, Jesus, what type of story is this? There, there is no way a king would do this. In fact, there's no way a king should do this. Just forgive someone that stole from, from him 10,000 talents. There's no way a king would grant forgiveness for such a debt. No king is that gracious. I can imagine Peter, of course, stopping Jesus and saying this, but I can also imagine Jesus turning to Peter and saying, Peter, you're the man. Peter, the story is about you. Remember the context of this parable. Peter asked a question. How many times should I forgive my brother? Up to seven times? Now, Again, Peter, if you were here last week, probably thought he was being very gracious by saying seven times because rabbinical teaching, he grew up with this teaching that you were to forgive a person three times, but on the fourth time for that same sin, you don't forgive him again. And so he doubles it and says, he knows Jesus is a forgiving guy. He says, what about seven times, Jesus? And Jesus is answering Peter's question in this parable. He's answering Peter's question by reminding him how much he has been forgiven. It's like a man who owed a king 10,000 talents, an immeasurable debt, a debt that would take well over 2,000 lifetimes to pay off. That's what Peter owed. And that's what the king of the universe forgave him. Romans 6.23 says this, For the wages of sin is death. Wages, meaning that this is what we're owed because we have sinned against the God of the universe, is death. And death here is not just dying. This is talking about the second death. This is talking about eternity in hell. It's eternity because, because we owed an infinite debt, an eternal debt. 
not 2,000 lifetimes worth, but an infinite amount of lifetimes worth. For the wages of sin is death, but, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Listen, the, the first part of this parable, Act 1, is our story. If you're a Christian this morning, if you put your faith in Jesus, this is your story. It's us. We who are saved owed God a debt because of our sin, an eternal debt, a debt we could never pay off. Therefore, we cried out to him at some point in our lives for mercy, and he forgave us. It's our story. The infinite debt that we owed, the 10,000 talents, was just forgiven. Again, the first part of this story is is about every Christian ever, including Peter. Remember the context. Again, I think there's a richness in this parable if we we put it in the context uh, of the teaching of Jesus and this interaction with Peter. Peter Peter asked the question about forgiveness. How many how many times am I to forgive a brother? Seven times, Jesus. Seven times. Jesus' answer, his first answer, he, Jesus teaches like a, a rabbi, like a Jew. He answers twice often. He'll give you a first answer, and then he'll give you a longer second answer that clarifies the first answer. And his first answer was seven times 70. Not seven times, Peter, but seven times 70. You know what that is? An uncountable number. It's a, a ridiculous number. It's an absurd number. It's a number to make a point. Listen, the 7 times 70 is the 10,000 talents in the parable. Think about it. We are to forgive because we have been forgiven so much. We have been forgiven 10,000 talents worth. Therefore, we should forgive 7 times 70. Or 10,000 talents worth. Or endlessly. That's the connection to Peter's question. Which brings me to the second point this morning. Again, the first point is the the reason for forgiveness. Simply, we have been forgiven so much. We have been forgiven so much, therefore we should be forgiving. That's the reason for forgiveness. The second point this morning is the cost of forgiveness. The cost of forgiveness. Now, Jesus is really going to, to get to the heart of Peter's question in the second part of the parable. Remember, the question was, how many times am I to, to forgive my brother? And in the second act of, of this parable, and the first act is our story, how much we've been forgiven. In the second act of this parable, Jesus is going to illustrate the absurdity. In fact, I had to find different adjectives to kind of, you're going to hear me over and over and over again, use words that relate to absurdity, because I I just can't put it into words. The absurdity of a Christian not forgiving a fellow Christian. Jesus is going to illustrate this in this parable. Fellow servant. When you hear the word servant, that's two people that are under a master. It's believers. 
hypocrite. That's what this is illustrating, the absurdity of a Christian not forgiving another Christian. Look at verse 27 again. It says this, And out of pity for him, this is the first servant, out of pity for him, the master of that servant released him and forgave him the debt. 10,000 talents worth, just forgiven like that. Now listen to verse 28. But when, when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii and seizing him he began to choke him saying pay what you owe now verse 27 and verse 28 when when they're put together they're put together on purpose they're put together to provoke outrage within your soul as you read the story how could someone who has been forgiven so much not be willing to forgive so little in comparison? It's absurd. Again, ludicrous. You guys fill in the blank for the thesaurus and find words that try to describe how insane it is for someone who has been forgiven so much to not forgive it someone for so little in comparison. Now, I just want to be clear so we don't miss it, if I haven't made it clear enough already. The outrage that comes from these two verses put together just illustrates how ludicrous, how ridiculous it is when a Christian is unwilling to forgive a brother or sister in Christ. It makes absolutely no sense at all. And I say this in all humility. I don't care what the offense is. It's still nothing compared to what God has forgiven you. And that's the answer to Peter's question. Peter, of course you're going to forgive your brother. Of course you're going to forgive your brother. It would be absurd not to, Peter. And and you should do it as many times as it takes. Because you have been forgiven so much, Peter. You You should be eager to forgive your brother. Eager to, to, to be able to, to have the privilege of modeling Christ's forgiving love. Eager to, to, to model your Savior and forgive your brother. Now, let me point out something else in, in verse 28 that I, I think is important. One of the things that um, you don't want to do with the parable is, is press the parable too much and, and make things say, uh, make the parable say things that Jesus is not saying. Usually there's one main point that you're getting at, and it's kind of like a, an analogy falls apart at some level. Well, parables are like that too. You're, you're to look at one main point. You can almost make Jesus' parable say anything you want if you press it too much. So so you're always trying to be careful in that, but I think there's something here that fits in with the rest of Jesus' teaching, and I don't think I'm pressing it too much. Verse 28 says this, and I think this is important. It says, but when that same servant went out, when that same servant went out. Now, in Greek, the first word of that verse is not but. 
it's actually went out. It's the Greek word, word and I butchered it first service, but it's ex erkomai. Yes. Ex erkomai. I know Greek, but uh, I'm not well enough that I don't check it with scholars before I say anything uh, very confidently. So uh, it is a very prominent position in the sentence. That's why I pointed out it actually in Greek jumps out at you. It's the very first word. Um, it's also an active middle participle, meaning the servant took action. It's not passive. He took action, and he took action for his own interests. He himself went out. It's in the past tense, so it went out. The, the present tense or the definition of this word would, would be go. He was going, but it's error, so went is a better translation. He went out after him. He went out after him. Now, I point this out because I think there's a connection here to Jesus' broader teaching in Matthew 18. And, and we saw this last week. So if you would, turn to Matthew 18, verse 12. Let me remind you, Jesus is sitting with the disciples. He's teaching them. This is one long teaching. And I think it helps us to connect the teaching together and not just see it in different places. And I think we will understand this parable a lot better if we connect it to his broader teaching. So look at Matthew 18, verse 12. It says this. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountain and what? Go. Jesus is going to go after, the good shepherd is going to go after that one sheep. He takes action. He he actively searches for that one out, out of his love for that sheep. He goes in search of that that one that went astray. Now look at Matthew 18, verse 15. 18, verse 15. Again, one long teaching. I think this is connected. It's the very next thing that comes after this parable. He says this, verse 15. If your brother sins against you, what are you to do? You're to model Christ. You're to model the the good shepherd. If your brother sins against you, you are to, to go. Go actively search for him, find him, confront him, tell him his fault, but but do it like Christ. Do it like the the good shepherd with the the same love, gentleness, and compassion and urgency as the the shepherd who leaves the 99 for the one. We are to model Christ's love when we go after our brother. If your brother sins against you, go. Go. Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. The goal in in confronting each other within the church is to to gain a brother back, to to restore a relationship for reconciliation. The goal is reconciliation. The goal is not to air out our grievances. goal is to restore a relationship. Now turn back to Matthew 18, verse 28. Again, this is the context of this parable. It says this, but, but when that same servant, the first servant, when that same servant went out, it's the main word of that verse, went out, he took action, he went out and found one of his servants, a brother, a fellow servant, who owed him a hundred denarii, and what did he do? 
and seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe. Now, now let me ask a question. Is that modeling Jesus' shepherding love? No. Can you imagine Jesus finding this one sheep and then choking him to death? Yet, this is how a lot of Christians confront each other within the church. Maybe not literally choking a brother, but definitely figuratively choking a brother, angrily saying, pay back what you owe. Or the anger may not be verbal or physical, but it's definitely within the heart, and everyone can see it besides the person that's angry. The heart attitude behind when, when confronting a brother is just so important. Remember what Jesus said in Matthew 5, 21. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. According to Jesus, our heart disposition when we confront each other matters a lot. Listen, we're called to confront each other. I want to be clear. You you can't get past that in Matthew 18. We're, We're called to confront each other within the church out of love. But we're called to do it with the right heart. If a brother sins against you, you're not to just let it go unless it's minor something you can just let go, that's fine. If it's not minor, it's not something you can just let go, you're called to confront that brother. If it's something that's going to hurt that brother, you're called to confront him. And the heart behind why you confront him is so important. It needs to be a Christ-like heart. Modeling Christ, shepherding love, carefully, gently, kindly, truthfully, but truth in love compassionately, believing the best, humbly. Because the goal in confrontation is to gain back a brother, not to air out grievances. Listen, I'm going to ask you to examine your heart. You may not be physically choking a brother right now, but, but here's my question. Are you choking a brother right now in your heart? bitter, angry at a brother or sister in Christ, or maybe even at a spouse, a brother or sister in Christ? If that's true, repent. Right now in your heart. Stop listening to the sermon and, and get right with the Lord. Repent in your heart. Turn from that wicked attitude and ask God for forgiveness and, and, and think about the irony in that. Asking God to forgive you, that attitude. Again, verse 28. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. 
And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, Pay what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him, Have patience with me, and I will pay you. That's almost, almost word for word what the first servant said to the king. And you would think, you would think that that first servant would see the hypocrisy right at that moment. But sadly, he doesn't. Therefore, verse 30 says, He refused and went and put him in prison until he should pay the debt. Now, Jesus is telling this parable in a way, again, he's just such a masterful storyteller. I mean, we shouldn't expect anything less being God the Son. Uh, But he tells this parable in a way that makes you ask a question. Why doesn't this servant forgive the other servant? I mean, after being forgiven so much, why can't he see the hypocrisy in this? And, And I have two answers for why that is. And the first answer is this. This first servant is so filled with bitterness and anger within his heart that he's just blind. And this is something that we need to examine our hearts with because bitterness and anger will blind us. It's blinding. In fact, many of us have seen it in other people and, and just seen the, the blindness of, uh, of them because of the bitterness and anger. It will blind you. He couldn't see the hypocrisy because he was blinded with rage, anger, and bitterness. That's the first reason, but I think there's a second reason, and I think this is important too. The second reason is this. Forgiveness is costly. It's costly. Let's just think back to the king for a second. What was the king saying when he said to the first servant, I forgive you? He, he was saying this, and he literally says this. He says, I, I'm not going to demand you to pay back what you owe. You, you are free from the debt. He says, I release you. I, I, I forgive you. But what's, a, what's that mean? It means the king now is out 10,000 talents. And forgiving him cost him 10,000 talents. It's costly. And you know what? I think this is what many people miss about the gospel. If you ask a lot of people, they, they, they think God is just going to forgive them. They're living a life that doesn't reflect the life that we're called to live within Scripture at all. And, and you go tell them, like, hey, you've you're not living the way that, that God has called you to live. And, and they say something like, well, when I get to heaven, he'll forgive me. They, they don't understand the cost of forgiveness. They think God will just forgive them. But remember Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is what? Death. Just because God forgave you doesn't mean the debt went away. No, someone had to pay that debt. Therefore, God the Son took on our debt upon himself on the cross so that we didn't have to pay it. So that we could be forgiven. Again, forgiveness is costly. It's costly. Now look at verse 28. It says this. But when that same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a a hundred denarii. Now, a hundred denarii is an interesting 
amount. It's an interesting number. In fact, I've thought about this parable a lot, and it's bothered me for a long time. If I were telling this parable, first of all, it wouldn't be as good as Jesus's, so just make that clear. I would have said something like this. The, the first servant owed the king millions of dollars, 10,000 talents, millions of dollars. And then the second servant owed the, the guy that was forgiven a buck fifty. And he choked him over a buck fifty just to show the, the hypocrisy there. But that's not what Jesus does. It was a hundred denarii. Remember, we said this already, one denarii is a day's worth of work. So let's do the math. If the average worker works 260 days a year, that means 100 days is about 40% of a yearly income. So let's say someone earns 70000 a year. That would be around, not exact, but around $30,000. I mean, that's not a little amount. In other words, it would have been costly to forgive this other servant. $30,000 worth. Now, I want to be clear, so we, we're in the context of the parable. 100 denarii is nothing, absolutely nothing compared to 10,000 talents. But it was costly. And that's the point. Forgiveness is costly. Forgiving a brother or sister in Christ within the church can be very costly. By using a hundred denarii in this parable, I think Jesus is saying forgiveness is sometimes very hard. Because it's can be, at least, very costly. And what do I mean by costly? It'll cost you your anger. It will cost you your bitterness. It will cost you your right to be hurt. In our victimhood society and culture, that, that's very costly. The right to be the victim, to be hurt. That's costly. Let me put it this way, and again, examine your heart. Some of you right now are holding on to anger, bitterness, and hurt and you refuse to let it go. Therefore, you won't forgive. One author put it this way. Forgiveness is complex, and it really is. Jesus offers forgiveness freely, yet forgiveness comes with a cost. The cost is the blood of Christ. And in a similar way, not exact, but in a similar way, we are to offer forgiveness freely, yet forgiveness comes with a cost. The cost is letting go of hurt feelings and the desire for vengeance. Again, forgiveness is costly. But there's a flip side to the cost of forgiveness that we need to be aware of. Forgiveness is costly, but unforgiveness, holding on to bitterness and anger, unforgiveness is dangerous. It's dangerous. And this brings me to my last point, the danger of unforgiveness. Look at verse 31. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed, and they went and reported to their master all that had taken place. Then his master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, 
I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. And should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. 2,000 lifetimes worth, the rest of his life, paying off the debt. And then one of the scariest verses in all of Scripture, verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now before I say anything about verse 35, I I just want to be very clear. We, We should always interpret Scripture with Scripture use clearer texts to interpret texts that may not be as clear. And, and I want to be clear here. The Bible teaches clearly that you cannot lose your salvation. You cannot lose your salvation. And I don't think this parable was ever meant to be pressed to the point of saying that someone who has genuine saving faith can lose it because of unforgiveness. I think that's a misinterpretation of this text. The the main point, again, when we we interpret a parable, we should be looking for the main point. The main point is is to show in this story the absurdity. There's that word again. Absurdity of a Christian not forgiving another Christian, another brother. That's the main point. John MacArthur, MacArthur writes this. A person who does not forgive is therefore a person lacking in godly character and without Christ-like love. No matter how orthodox his theology or, or how outward impeccable his moral, uh, morals appear to be, a Christian who will not relinquish a hateful, resentful attitude towards someone who has wronged him is a person who knows neither the true glory of his redeemed humanity nor the true glory of God's gracious divinity. An unforgiving Christian is a living contradiction of his new nature in Christ. It is central to the heart of God to forgive. And only the Christian who radiates forgiveness radiates true godliness. This is the point of the parable. It makes, again, absolutely no sense for a Christian to be unforgiving. That's the point. It's the point, Peter. It makes no sense to be unforgiving. I don't care how many times. Yet, With that said, we need to feel the weight of this warning. Verse 34. And in anger, his master delivered him to the jailers until he should pay all his debt, all 10,000 talents worth, all 2,000 lifetimes worth. Verse 35. So also my heavenly Father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your I mean, that's a warning that should make each one of us examine our hearts right now. Is there unforgiveness? Is there bitterness? Is there anger towards someone? Remember how Jesus taught us to pray. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. 
then right after this prayer, the Lord's Prayer, the way that Jesus taught us to pray, he says this in Matthew six fourteen. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your heavenly Father forgive your trespasses. James 2.13 says this, For judgment is without mercy to one who shows no mercy. Once again, a Christian cannot lose his salvation. That's not what I'm saying. But that doesn't mean we should take these warnings lightly. Your lack of forgiveness may be evidence that you're not truly saved in the first place. And here's why I say that. Because how could someone not be forgiving when they have been forgiven so much? It's absurd. It's ludicrous. It's impossible. So the three points of the sermon this morning... The reason for forgiveness is the great mercy that God has shown us. The reason for forgiveness is the great mercy that God has shown us. The second point is this, the cost, the cost of forgiveness. And I want to be clear, it's costly. It doesn't mean it's easy to forgive someone. Some of you might might really be struggling right now with, with, with this idea that I'm supposed to let go of resentment anger, bitterness, and hurt that I am to forgive someone. You know how you do it? You remember how much you've been forgiven. You you constantly go back to the gospel and remind yourself 10,000 talents worth. I've been forgiven so much. And as you reflect on the gospel over and over and over again within your heart, you know what? That resentment, that bitterness, that anger, it fades. The reason for forgiveness is is how you can remove the, the bitterness and ugliness out of your heart as you reflect on the gospel. But there's a danger in holding on to these things, resentment, anger, bitter, and hurt. And that's the last point of the sermon, the danger of unforgiveness. Verse 35, so also my heavenly Father will do to, to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Now, I started this sermon series last week saying forgiveness is meant to be interpersonal. I even said that today. Interpersonal between people, relationships, not just personal. And, and I stand by that wholeheartedly. Forgiveness, the goal of forgiveness is to bring reconciliation But forgiveness is also meant to be very, very personal. We are to forgive from the heart. We are to have a forgiving heart, a a heart that is ready and eager to to forgive, transactional forgiveness. A heart that won't won't hold on to bitterness or anger, that, that lets that go. So that when that person does ask for forgiveness, you are ready to do it. You're not blinded. It's very personal. So let me end the sermon, in this sermon series today with words from a 
man named Paul. Ephesians 4, verse 31, it says this. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you. Be put out of your heart, along with all malice, and replace that with, verse 32, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. Let's pray. Dear God, our Lord, our Father, forgiveness on this magnitude and when someone has, has really truly wronged us $30,000 worth or 100 denarii worth, Lord. It is hard to forgive, Lord. And, and honestly, it, it's impossible without your spirit. Without, without the supernatural effect of, of the Holy Spirit within our heart, reminding us over and over and over again of the great debt that has been forgiven us, Lord. God, I pray that we as a church are, are so gospel-focused and gospel-minded that we, we, we understand how much we've been forgiven to the best of our ability because it's beyond our understanding, Lord, what, what it costs Christ on the cross, Lord, that we reflect on that daily, hourly, momently, Lord, so much that it just makes it easy to forgive others no matter what the cost God, I pray that's true for each one of us. Help us to be a forgiving church. In your son's name, amen.